Hey, Bingo Work listeners, this is your host, Andrea Butcher, and I am so grateful to bring another incredible conversation to you today. When I first met today's guest, I felt an immediate connection with him and such an affinity for the work that he does because he's on a mission to ensure that organizational culture embraces vulnerability. And you'll hear why through the story that he shares. He says that half the battle is creating space for vulnerability to show up and listen in to the impact that that has when leaders do that. Andrew Adeniyi is the founder and CEO of AAA Solutions, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. But what you really need to know about Andrew is how his life experiences have shaped his passion and approach for the work that he does with so much care and intentionality. Listen in as we talk about the impact of sharing how you are really feeling as a leader and approaching DEI as a strategic business opportunity. He'll even share a little bit around how to do that. Check it out. It really starts with the book that I wrote called The Circle of Leadership. I was working for an international retailer and I was working for their Indiana division, which happened to be one of the best in the country, top three out of 24 divisions. The CEO came from that division. A lot of senior leaders came from there as well. And it was my first job out of undergrad. So I assumed everyone had a great culture, like what I was experiencing. I found out really quickly that I had not been paying attention to the Gallup polls, and that was not the case. I had a promotional opportunity to go to the East Coast and work for one of the worst divisions in the country for that particular employer. And what I realized fairly quickly was that it felt like a completely different company. And I remember thinking, how can two divisions in the same company, same pay, same access to talent, same training, same everything be drastically different? And I realized it was leadership and culture. In Indiana, there's a culture of you don't want to let your leader down. You'll put in extra hours to ensure you don't let your leader down because there's that level of care that she expressed. On the East Coast, it was a culture of fear where you need to do your job well or else. And it made me ask the question, if I was to inherit a sinking ship, that's what I referred to the East Coast Division, and I wanted to turn it around, how would I do that? So I went on this journey of studying and learning and researching. I happened to be in my master's program with Michigan State at the same time studying management strategy and leadership. And I happened to be in essentially a real life case study of what model would I use to, to create that. And that's really where the journey started. And what I, where I landed was essentially you need to focus on the three P's of culture. And that's amplify purpose, prioritize people, and simplify processes. And when we talk about people in particular, part of that is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there's a chapter in my book on that and that was really the foundation of me trying to realize what is DEI and how can leaders pull that lever to make a more engaged workplace. I love that you've had this personal experience at the time that all of that was happening, because no doubt that fueled the work that you were doing, that fueled your passion for the research and the writing. Yeah, I always say that if I had a magic wand and I could wave it and everyone could love going to work, I would do it immediately, <laughs> right? Because when you think about two thirds of people hate their job, like, not dislike it a little bit, but like sick to their stomach on Sunday night, that bothers me, especially because nine times out of 10, it's controllable. And it, again, it comes down to leadership and it comes down to culture. Yeah. And that's where the work that, that you and I do really intersects is that we get the impact of the leader. The shadow of the leader is the culture. 
And that's why two divisions within the same organization can have such a different feel as you experienced. So how do you define DEI? I mean, DEI has become such an important part of our vernacular and such an important part of culture. How do you define it? Yeah, let's break it down. When you think about diversity, it's really a numbers game. It really just talks about the range of human differences. It's a way to categorize people, in other words. And one of the biggest things people skip over when we talk about diversity is why diversity matters. Diversity of thought is really what matters at the core. People with different experiences, different backgrounds, different upbringings, and sometimes race, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, all play a role in the diversity of thought that people bring to the workplace. And I always tell people during my trainings, if we have six Andrews sitting around a table trying to solve a complex business problem, we are in trouble, <laughs> okay? Because I have blind spots and I have things that I may not even consider. So that diversity of thought is super critical. And then when we talk about equity, it's all about fairness. It's all about custom tools and resources that allow people to do their best work and to be the most productive and to ensure that they're engaged in the workplace. So that's the equity component. I is inclusion. So diversity is what's make it, what makes us different and what makes us unique. Inclusion is how we come together to create something more beautiful, more meaningful together than we could alone. And the end result of DEI is belonging. So a lot of times people say, well, what is DNI? If you do DEI well at work, you have a culture of belonging where diversity of thought is embraced and encouraged. Yeah, that's great. If you do DEI well, naturally you will have a culture of belonging. It's the outcome of those other things. One of the things that I really appreciate about the work that you're doing in this space is you recognize that it's not a one and done. You recognize that it's not just about education. You really approach it strategically. And that's where your three P's come in. Purpose, people, processes. And then DEI is really a part of that people pillar, as you said. So I think most leaders tend to focus on processes. And that's part of the problem. So they'll throw in uh, ping pong tables and they'll throw in these different things that they think will help the organizational culture but really, you got to start with the foundation of why are we here? Do we know that? Can we articulate that? Right. And why does that matter? And then how do you bring the right people on the bus that are in alignment with your why? If the leadership team, if the organization as a whole doesn't know the purpose uh, well enough to really operationalize it and over communicate it, how are you going to be bringing the right people on the bus? Right. So we can't even talk to what processes to put in place if we're not even figuring out what we're trying to accomplish. You're trying to put a person on the moon. Guess what? The people we need to hire need to be people who can play a significant role in helping us put people on the moon. Otherwise, it's not a good fit. But if we don't even know that's why we're here, you're missing out on an opportunity to get the best people on the team who would be the most engaged. And then you figure out what to do from there, put them in the right seat, as Jim Collins talks about, and ensuring you're going in the right direction. So I talk about the three P's in that order on purpose. Figure out why you're there, why the organization exists, right? And then then move to who do we need to bring on board and ultimately what processes do we need to put in place to be efficient and effective in everything that we do. It's the why, who, and what of, of DEI, isn't it? And starting with the why, I mean, we all know, like Simon Sinek, start with why, so good. I suspect that as you're taking leaders through that process of really determining their purpose, determining their why, like those are tough conversations. And 
I also think that's got to be good for a leadership team to align to the as hard as that is to get there. It's got to be a good exercise for them. Yeah. So I have a training next week, actually, in Ohio with a group of CEOs. And what I'm going to be talking about is kind of an intro DEI session, right? But the way I'm going to hit home with it and connect it to overall strategy is getting them to figure out what are their personal core values? What are their personal core values? How do those core values align with the purpose of their organization? And then how does that also overlap with what you get when you do DEI well, which is a culture of belonging where diversity of thought is embraced, right? I approach it that way because this has to be personal work. This can't be something where I get to work and diversity, equity, inclusion is important. Then I go back home to my non-diverse neighborhood. I go to my non-diverse gym. Then I go to my non-diverse church. Then I get to work and DEI, DEI, right? People don't know the why behind it. So if you attach your why to your core values, now you realize, oh, wow, integrity is one of my core values, right? So that attaches to a culture of belonging and DEI here. Or innovation is super important to me, right? So when I'm talking about belonging, we need to have diversity of thought and psychological safety so people can feel comfortable innovating, right? You have to make it personal. And that's always the approach that I take. And that usually disarms people because DEI can be polarizing at times and can cause people to grab their shield and run for cover. But by talking about you as an individual and connecting those dots, people tend to be a little bit more receptive. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like we all... We all crave connection. We all crave being seen. And so getting people in that personal place, I could see how that would be really disarming. And you're, like you said, every everywhere you go, you take your personal values with you. So you're naturally then connecting the dots too. Because we know like the work that we do is so much bigger than the workplace. Because the leaders that we're working with go home. They have communities that they're leading within. They have other arenas that they're leading within. And we know that the skills that we're equipping them with and empowering them with, they're taking into all of those other places as well. An easy place to start too is uh, is at home. You know, you have your church communities, you have the organizations and clubs you're affiliated with and certainly want to empower you to impact change there as well. But start at home. How many parents have not had to have any type of DI-related conversation with their kids? I have leaders that, that will come to me like, what can I do about it? Have a conversation with your kids. Try to influence them to be on the right side of this DEI discussion and ask them what their perspective is on people that are different or in underrepresented groups and just challenge people to have some more uncomfortable conversations. And I think we'll move a lot further, faster if we can do that. Yeah, and the key is being having the courage to have an awkward conversation, isn't it? I, I will often encourage leaders to just, they'll say like something like, I don't know where to start. We'll start there by saying, hey, I don't know what to say, but this is important for us to have this conversation. What do you all think? Just ask a question. Because I, I also think we don't often give our kids the benefit of the doubt. I think a lot of these things they're seeing, they're hearing. And so creating a safe space, it demystifies the conversation. I agree wholeheartedly with that. So I know that another aspect of the work you do is creating space for vulnerability. When you and I talked about this a few months ago, I was really struck when you said, yes, like half the battle is creating a space for vulnerability. So why is that so important? And where have you seen that modeled? 
Why is that so important? Oh man, uh, it is so important because it's so rarely commonplace in work in workplaces, right? You think about two thirds of people hating their job. I guarantee you those two thirds of people who hate their job, they wouldn't describe their workplaces as a place where they can be vulnerable. They wouldn't describe their workplaces as a place that's psychologically safe. So it's a missing ingredient in a lot of organizations. Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors and she speaks a lot about vulnerability. And one of the things she talks about is how there's power in vulnerability because you're so comfortable with self, you're so aware of self that how others may respond to your vulnerability won't shake you won't cause you to feel like you need to silence yourself or not be your authentic self. So I think there's power in vulnerability just because of the courage it takes to do that. When I talk about that being modeled, I think back to my time at Starbucks. So I was a big fan of Starbucks. I had case studies on Starbucks when I was in grad school. I obviously was there as a customer. Then I had the opportunity to work there as a multi-unit leader. And uh, I was blown away by all the things that they do well. They don't do everything well, but the things that they do do well were exceptional and very powerful for me. And I remember when the George Floyd murder happened, by that time I had been doing independent consulting on the side, uh, DEI and culture, but uh, the DEI focus for me was birthed out of that situation. And I remember I had a leader who uh, we had our weekly call and the leader said, you know, there's no way we could just talk about business as usual knowing what just happened with the George Floyd murder. I want to clear this space, entire hour call to talk about this. I remember thinking in that moment, how many leaders in America will even acknowledge the George Floyd murder in the workplace? We even say anything, period, let alone say, and I'm the only black person on the team, right? So for them to say, we're going to clear the entire agenda to open it up to thoughts and feelings. I remember thinking this place is different. There's nowhere I ever worked before where that, that would have been a thing. And even before then, the executive VP of Starbucks got on a, a virtual call and paused and acknowledged what happened and started to get teary-eyed in that moment. I remember thinking, again, how many leaders are not going to mention this? And here, this person who reports to the COO is on this call company-wide and acknowledges it, a white woman at that. And I remember thinking, that takes courage. That takes vulnerability. And that also shows others that it's okay to do the same. It's okay to be able to be vulnerable and say, I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is we need to create some space to have this important conversation. And that was a very transformative moment because then stories got to come up from that. I remember having some peers who, who began sharing things like, well, and this was the first comment that was shared after he opened up space. Somebody said, I don't understand why, you know, they're damaging businesses downtown. And I didn't plan on speaking during that hour because I wasn't emotionally available to show up in that way. And after I heard that be the first statement shared, I had to share. So I talked about being a fourth grader and beating this white kid in basketball. He called me the N-word because he was upset. I talked about being in college with one of my white fraternity brothers and some of my black fraternities in a car on a road trip from Purdue and a police officer pulling us over and telling him to step out the car. He was the driver and walking away from the vehicle, talking to him for a minute. He comes back looking like he just saw a ghost and we drive off. And I'm, we're like, what, what happened? He said, the police officer just wanted to make sure we, I was okay. He got close enough to see it was a white guy with black people in the car and he just wanted to make sure I was okay. 
right? So I started sharing story after story with my white colleagues to let them know, like, when we talk about this thing, like, this is something that has been commonplace in my life since as soon as I can remember. So when we talk about things like, and I don't condone or support rioting by any means, regardless of the situation. However, when we lead with that, we're talking about symptoms to more deeply rooted issue as opposed to talking about the rooted issue first, All right? So that was a moment for me where I, I felt called to be vulnerable. One, because I had a leader who created space for that. And two, because I realized that I had stories that could be impactful to others. So you said something really important there that you felt called to be vulnerable because your leader created a space for vulnerability. So, man, I just think about then no doubt the impact of you sharing what that had, how that impacted the rest of the team, but that wouldn't have happened unless the space had been created for the vulnerability. Like that's yep. the power in it, isn't it? Yeah. And the level of trust and empathy that blossomed out of that moment with my peers just brought us together as a team in a more impactful way that, and you know, I didn't do a case study on it, but that certainly strengthened engagement, trust, safety, productivity, right? Just the human connection. But to your point, it's non-existent. If we don't have a leader willing to ask the question, how are you doing? And I like to say it's the second, how are you doing? It's not the first one that we're used to saying because it's the proper thing to kick off a conversation, but we really want to get to our action items. It's how are you really doing? No, we got time. I carved out 20 minutes of the hour to actually talk about like how you're doing. Let's talk about it. And it not being a one and done, that that then becomes a regular part of your connection with people is that they know, hey, I care about you. I want to know. This is a relationship in which you can share, you can be open. What are we so afraid of? I mean, I am naturally an open person. Connection is a core value of mine. And so I have opportunity areas, of course, but I, I often don't understand what it is that holds people back from being open, from creating that kind of a space. What do you think it is that holds people back? What are we afraid of? I think it's fear and or ignorance a lot of times at the root. Fear because um, a lot of us have corporate baggage. You've been indoctrinated in certain cultures and environments that directly and indirectly let you know how you need to operate. And a lot of times vulnerability has not been one of the things included in that, right? I think there's this sense that leaders oftentimes have of, I need to have all the answers. I need to always come across as competent. I need to make sure that my team feels that I, I have it all together, right? But none of us have it all together. We're all human beings, you know, we're gonna make mistakes. And the strength is, is being able to say, I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know, but let me do some digging and try to figure that out. That establishes trust way more than somebody throwing out a hard question and, oh, it's fumbling through some type of answer to make it seem like, like you're more intelligent than you are. So I think that fear, you know, being ostracized, if, if you're not coming across as competent or being passed over for a promotion, if, if you don't seem like you have it all together, like the person next to you. So I think fear plays a big role. And the other part is ignorance, where a lot of people haven't seen that behavior modeled. I've been on calls before, Monday calls, where we're going around, how's everyone doing? How's everyone's weekend? And my leader mentions like, hey, I'm not feeling it today. You know, I had a, I had a rough night last night. 
And I apologize in advance if, if you know, I, I'm just not all there or I'm not my normal self. I'm just thinking, I've never heard a leader say that on a weekly call because we got to look like we're together. We got it all together when we're human beings, <laughs> you know? So uh, I would say fear and ignorance. A lot of people haven't seen leaders demonstrate vulnerability and action in a practical way. And vulnerability, like you said, it breeds vulnerability, but it also just feels so much better because it's honest. I heard someone say one time, like, I keep my dirt on the surface because everybody can see it anyways. And so might as well acknowledge it. I mean, you have to just realize, again, there's power in it and people feel more safe when you lead with vulnerability. So I always try to encourage leaders to do that. And, and leaders, it starts with you. You set the tone. Yeah. We use Kuzis and Posner's Leadership Challenge as a model to equip leaders. And there's this really great piece of research. In their literature, they asked thousands of employees with new leaders, what's the first question you want answered by your new leader? And when I ask leaders that question, a lot of times they'll say, oh, it was like, what's our vision? Where are we going? What do you expect of me? But the number one question that employees want to know of their leader, their new leader, is who are you? Mm. Because we want to know who is this person? It, who, who is the human being? What do they value? What's their style? What are they like to work with? Yeah, a lot of people, we know people tend to leave jobs because of their manager. That's a, a huge reason, right? So it makes sense. Getting that information up front allows you to understand what are going to be their pet peeves, what are the things that they're going to be looking for, what's their personality style that makes their lives a lot easier if they have that awareness so they're not having to guess each time. Yeah, so show up and inform the people that you're working with of who you are. So what is the biggest mistake that organizations are making right now when it comes to a DEI strategy? Not having one. <laughs> not not having one. Seriously. Uh, usually, there, there's really two boats I typically see. There's one where people acknowledge DEI is important. They need to do something with it. They have no idea where to start, and therefore, there's been no action. And then the, the other side that I typically see will be where, hey, we got a committee up and running. We started a book club. We've celebrated some holidays and things of that nature which is better than nothing. However, at the end of the year, you have no way to really measure success. You have no, no way to really measure impact. And then you have these people who have been meeting bi-weekly or monthly for a year, six months, two years. And not only are they burnt out, but they're looking back like, what did we really do? And then it can be counterproductive to actually doing DEI the right way, because if there's been funds that have been spent, if there's been resources that have been allocated, senior leadership team may rightfully want to know what's the return on that investment? What happened with that? And if DI committees can't speak to that, that then can almost lead senior leadership teams to believe, well, we shouldn't be giving more budget to this. Maybe we need to take some budget away. So I would say the biggest challenge is not having a cohesive strategy with some smart goals that ladders up to the overall vision and strategic plan for the organization. So what is the first step, Andrew, in building a cohesive strategy? The data is, is where we start. Leverage data, quantitative and qualitative data. You can start with a survey to capture feedback. You can have a open text box question 
on the survey as well to get some qualitative feedback there. You can hold some focus groups, town hall discussions, or interviews just to capture feedback to understand what's the perception from an employee standpoint when it comes to DEI in the workplace. Are they compensated fairly? Do they feel like they belong? Do they feel like they have the resources and tools they need to grow their career? Get that information and also collect demographic information along the way because you want to know are women experiencing certain things in the organization differently than men? Are people who identify in a particular way from a sexual orientation standpoint feeling like they're not included or can't bring their full self to, to work? When you do that, now you're armed with data to not just say, hey, this is Andrew's thoughts or Andrew's thoughts on what we should do. We've had 50% of our workforce complete the survey to give us their feedback. Now we take the feedback and use that to create a data-driven strategic plan. And I always encourage my clients to create three-year strategic plans, get some goals on paper, right? And now at the end of the year, you may still have a book club that you're doing. You may be being intentional with celebrating events and things of that nature, but you can confidently say yes or no at the end of the year if you've achieved your goals because you have goals and they're tied to retention or recruitment or productivity, right? And now it's easier to be able to say, oh, wow, we actually need to double our budget for DEI because it's helped us to diversify our talent pool across the company. Yeah, and it's had an impact on culture. I mean, there's such a culture connection as well with all of these efforts. They could also call you because this is the work you, <laughs> you lead leaders through. I just feel blessed to walk in my purpose every day. You know, it's powerful when you find the intersection of what you're willing to work at every day, what you're skilled at, and a problem in the market, that, that intersection is powerful. And my prayer and hope is that everyone listening to this podcast finds that intersection. It's not been an easy ride. <laughs> Let me make sure I say that. It's been a roller coaster for sure, but I've never regretted leaving the nine to five corporate world to do this because I know it's why God put me on this earth. Amen. I'm so grateful that you're doing the work and that you followed that call. It takes courage and to step out and take a risk. We have referred you to some clients for that very reason, because I know that the heart behind the work that you're doing is so, is so pure and so focused. And I love the strategic connection. I mean, because th that's how you get sustainability, isn't it? That's how you get lasting results that really impact the people that impact the culture. Yeah. And the, and the approach that my firm takes is going to be one where we connect it with business. Some people approach DEI through the lens of higher education or through science or more kind of kumbaya feelings and sit around and talk about how we're feeling. That's not the approach that I take. We're going to talk about feelings. We're going to talk about emotions. We're going to connect with the heart, but we're also going to make the connections with how does this make our business better? And that's, that's I think, one of my differentiators with having that business background as well. Absolutely. How does this make my business better? Well, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate you, your insights. I appreciate you sharing. I have lots of good takeaways from today. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? The best way is LinkedIn. Super uh, accessible on LinkedIn. On it every day, probably too much. <laughs> but you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also reach out uh, through my personal site, AndrewAdeni.com. It's my first and last name.com. I'd be happy to connect with you and, and share more about uh, myself and learn more about you as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.